his karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams, thanks for everything, mom and dad, will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. Good morning and welcome to the morning briefing for Friday, September 21st, 2018. I'm your host, Eric Dame. Jake Hughes is your producer. And coming up on today's show, we're going to talk to Max Brickle. Now, Max is a small business owner. One of the businesses that he owns is Northwest Woolen Mills in Rhode Island. They make a uniform item for the United States Navy, an iconic uniform item, the Peacoat. Here's the problem. The Navy has decided to get rid of the iconic outer garment in 2019, which is going to have a devastating effect on, of course, Mr. Brickle's business, the people who work for him, and he thinks on the image of the Navy. I'm going to talk to him about what he thinks about this decision made by the Navy and how he's trying to change their minds before it goes into effect. And we're going to talk to a VFW post commander down in Hurricane Ravage, North Carolina. Find out what's going on on the ground down there, how they're doing, what they are in need of, any way that people can help them. So we're going to get, uh, you know, the boots on the ground, eyes right there, uh, info from him. And that is something that uh, we look forward to getting out to you today. So... A good Friday show, I would say, Jake. Would you agree? A fantastic Friday show. Yeah. And uh, how are you doing today? I am doing fantastic, Eric. You're doing day. fantastic, Eric. Yep. It's a great day. It's a Friday. We got a really good show today, and uh, I'm just having a lot of fun. Big weekend plans? Nope. Yeah. My weekend, a uh, big thing is flying down to the Military Influencer Conference on Sunday. That's the first night of it, and I'm the MC down there. So other than that, though, not too much planned for myself either. Got some big news coming in from the Korean Peninsula, a place that you're very familiar with, Jake. The remains of two more U.S. service members who had been missing since the Korean War have been identified, President Trump announced yesterday. Army Master Sergeant Charles McDaniel and PFC William Jones were acknowledged in a pair of tweets from the president. Uh, here's what the tweets read exactly. Army Master Sergeant Charles H. McDaniel, 32, of Vernon, Indiana, and Army PFC William H. Jones, 19, of Nash County, North Carolina, are the first American remains from North Korea to be identified as a result of my summit with Chairman Kim. These heroes are home. May they rest in peace, and hopefully their families can have closure. Of course, we have talked to several organizations who had high hopes. And, you know, for, for all of the political back and forth on the president, and I understand a lot of people don't like him. I understand a lot of people do like him. This is one thing where all of the organizations involved from the VSOs to the Korean and Cold War POW MIA uh, association that we spoke to, they were hopeful that something good would come out of this. And, and more movement has been made as far as uh, our relationship with North Korea in, I would say, a positive direction in the last six months than had in the last 60 years before that. I mean, it's pretty interesting what's going on over there. It really is. And you have to realize that we still don't know what form this these talks are going to take like what the the ultimate end state is what's important is the steps that are being made and the fact that we are getting some of these remains back so whatever it ends up being 
we have to remain and see it as a positive, at least for now. Yeah, uh, 7,700 U.S. service members still listed as missing in action from Korea. So this is just the start of what this is. The POW MIA accounting agency of the Defense Department, it's DPAA, they said that the North Koreans were very forthcoming and candid about the remains, that they weren't like sneaky about it, like we kind of expect everything when you're dealing with the North Koreans. When they first said that they would start uh, repatriating remains that they believe they have possession of, the questions were being asked, like, well, are these even going to be human remains? Are they going to be remains of like pigs or uh, what's the deal going to be? Does it surprise you at all that North Korea is kind of doing what they said they were going to do? It really does. And that maybe say, you know, goes towards saying what the status of North Korea really is. And uh, as a as a personal thing, I'm very hesitant on their actual like goodwill towards us. But it doesn't, like I said, it doesn't matter because right now we are getting these remains back and they are doing what they said they would do. Yeah, and it might give people hope that they will actually de-arm their nuclear program. That's the big thing. This is a, a, a country that's shown that it is uh, wacky before um, <laughs> and sometimes incredibly dangerous. Remember the South Korean naval vessel that was torpedoed by a North Korean submarine. The islands off the west coast of uh, South Korea that are very close to the border that have been shelled repeatedly by the North Koreans. They have shown a, a capability to do things that you would think are just insane and could touch off another live war on the Korean Peninsula. We're still at war with North Korea. That still is a fact. Um you know, it, it, but it's a cold war, essentially. It went cold 60-plus years ago now. It's something that their behavior has it reminded me a lot of petulant children, some kid who wants attention, throwing a tantrum and stuff like that. And it's usually something that they've used to get something back. They'll attack, they'll do something crazy in hopes of getting some sort of appeasement. Like, all right, just take you know 15,000 tons of food for your starving population and just shut up, just knock it off. This time seems to be different. And I don't know, man, but I think a big part of that might be because of our current president's tact towards them. It's something they understand quite clearly and something that they have responded to. Yeah. It's been very interesting. And I don't deny that whatever steps are being taken now are probably most likely because of President Trump. And I want to be hopeful, but at the same time, I can't, maybe it's just, I'm going cynical in my old age of 33, but... Uh, <laughs> Young man, yeah. snug it off. But uh, I just, I can't help but think of this as, how does this benefit the Kim regime? Well, if, well, the, the, that's, that's a difficult question to answer because we don't know exactly what's going on in North Korea. They are... Uh, so secure uh, in their borders, and that's about the only thing they're secure in. Yeah. And information gets out uh, questionably at best. I mean, defectors give some information, uh, especially when they're higher-ranking defectors who kind of have an idea of what's going on. They've had several famines during the course of the uh, the Kim family being in charge there. Of course, we're now in the third generation uh, of Kim's leading the country. They've had several famines. They've had you know, near uh, revolts uh, from the military, uh, military coups and things like that. Of course, when um, um, Kim Jong-un, the one who's in there now, shortly after he took over, he started executing family members of his just to consolidate power. It's a strange place. It doesn't work like anywhere else in the world, so it's hard to know. But there's a thought that maybe because this kid was 
taught in Europe. He went to private school in Switzerland. He's traveled around the world. He's seen things. He knows how things are in other places, I think more than his father and grandfather did. And maybe there's some sort of hope that the consolidation of power was to allow him to move them in this sort of direction where he can still be the bellicose, angry, like, I am North Korea, we're the most powerful nation. But he is also maybe moving them towards, like, hey, if we get rid of this nuclear program, and we don't want to start a nuclear war, they know that. They know that if they launch a nuke at South Korea, Japan, the United States, they'll be wiped off the face of the earth. I mean, it's, it's a fact. They know that. He has to know that. I don't think he's stupid. He may be crazy, but I don't think he's stupid. So maybe the thought is, listen, this is something that could is probably going to do us more harm than good. We can use this as a bargaining chip to get ourselves back on the world stage, essentially. Get us get ourselves unblackballed by all the countries out there. That may be what he's doing. Again, we don't know. Not a lot is known about how he thinks and what he does. We just know that they like to take pictures of him looking at things. Yeah. And there are fantastic social media accounts out there of Kim Jong-un looking at things. I think <laughs> one of them's a Tumblr. It's like Kim Jong-un looks at things. <laughs> and it's it's Pretty, pretty amazing. Good morning, Bill, Pete, Jennifer, everybody who's out there watching on Facebook Live. We're there at 7.15 every morning on Facebook Live. And then, of course, the live or the live, the live to tape show starts at 8.15 at ConnectingVets.com slash listen. Now, you're a computer guy, Jake, right? Yes, I am. And there's some good news for military members down affected by the hurricane who uh, lost their computers due to the hurricane, isn't there? Yes, there is. There's a group. See, this is what I love about veterans is that they, they we always find a niche and we just exploit it for good. And... <laughs> I, I know how that sounds. It just shut. It was the first word. That came, it was the first word that came to my mind. Well, it's, shut it's, up. A, it's like in, in computer terms, an exploit is not always a bad thing. It's figuring out a way to kind of beat the game. You know what I mean? It, exactly. And there's a group called Tech for Troops, and they accept old and unwanted computers and laptops. They refurbish them and get them in the hands of veterans who need them. And right now, they have a big. Uh, operation going on in the wake of the devastation of hurricane florence and they're running staff by veterans they also educate the workforce train educate bleh, i can't talk today what is wrong with me it's friday you've already done it for four days so now on the fifth day uh you rest just like in genesis <laughs> i don't think that's how it works i'm pretty sure it was five days and then rest right that's why we have the weekend something like that <laughs> anyway uh, yeah our god henry ford blessed us with with weekends anyway uh, yeah, uh, laptops, hard drives, power cores, and money to cover the cost of shipping. And right now, they have partnered with the American Legion, the VFW, and Team Red, White, and Blue in the Carolinas to get laptops to veterans who may have lost everything during the storm. Which this is important because you got to think we live in such a digital age yeah. where there people are now considering the internet a public utility. Yeah. It, that it, it's so ubiquitous to our society that. If you can't access the internet, if you can't get online, there's so much you can't do anymore. Yeah. No, it's very true. And uh, in our last house, before we moved down here, we got rid of cable. Well, actually, satellite TV is what we had, so I could watch all the NFL games. I started getting bored with the NFL. We got rid of that. We just did everything through streaming services like Sling TV, Netflix, stuff like that. And we really didn't miss it. The only reason we got cable again when we came down here is because the initial two-year deal or whatever it is when you sign up was ridiculously good. It was because they're losing customers left and right. The more important thing, I think, than uh, you know, being able to do work or stream things for these uh, soldiers, sailors, Marines, airmen, Coast Guard who are down in the Carolinas, what I think is the most important aspect 
How did you keep in touch with your family when you were stationed somewhere other than Houston? Were you still calling them on the phone a lot, or was it more messages and emails and things like that? Yeah, the the phones only really took place in Iraq. And again, that was before the age of social media for me. Yeah. So, yeah, it was through the computer. Yep. That's that's how I keep in touch with most of my uh, friends now. I mean, we every once in a while I'll get a phone call and be like, "Who's a California area code? Who's calling me from California?" I'll pick it up, and it's either one of those fake uh, robocalls from the FBI. The FBI wants your money and says you are illegal. We will call the cops in five minutes. I, I received <laughs> so many spam phone calls that it's got to the point where this may sound bad, but if I automatically hang up on anyone I hear with an Indian accent, asking to speak with Jacob Hughes, <laughs> asking to speak with Jacob Huggins. <laughs> Huggins, I, I enjoy messing with uh, robocallers and, and telemarketers. If I'm not busy, I have nothing but time for them. <laughs> I will pretend to be a, a doddering old fool and play that game it's it's fun i just enjoy it i've even recorded some of them and should put them out there but yeah. anyway uh you know there is uh, uh an importance to computers that in this day and age particularly with the younger generation i can tell you from having spent a lot of time with them at college the phone is not something that's used for anything but texting and apps these days they don't like calling people on the phones which when you work in a newsroom that's a bit of a problem well, do i have to call the police to find out about this yes you have to call the police to find out about this murder. But everything is done digitally now. Texting and Facebook Messenger and Twitter direct messages and Instagram and I guess Snapchat. I still don't have that and don't Me know or care how it works. It seems only bad has come out of it. But, you know, it is, uh, it, it's a great thing that Tech for Troops is doing down there. Do they have a website that you know of or anything where people can go and, and check them out and, and help donate or anything like that? I am looking it up right now because I'm sure that they do. I'm guessing it's like techfortroops.something, right? Techfortroops.org. Techfortroops.org. So yeah, there and, you go. And this is not their first rodeo. Actually, after the dev devastation of Hurricanes Harvey and Irma, they sent over 150 laptops to Houston and surrounding areas. Wow. And their slogan is, or their statement is, we turn your donations into training, education, and technology for veterans and their families in need. We are a 501c3 nonprofit. That is very cool stuff. Now, Jake, you're getting older. I mean, it's a fact of life. It's what we do. People are born, then they get older, and then they die. That's basically how each and every person's life has gone. Uh, I may be the first who uh, who doesn't. I, I you know I don't know why I feel that, but I just I feel like I might live forever. You're but you're still 21. Yeah, I'm basically uh, mentally I'm like nine. So yeah, got that going for here. me. As you get older, are there physical maladies that you're facing? each and every day is there anything that hurts pretty regularly on you uh just about everything hurts when i wake up in the morning yeah i have that problem too and you and i get up very early in the morning i think the earlier you wake up the more your body is not prepared to trick you into thinking it feels okay yeah i had to make all sorts of like noises to get oh, yeah. myself out of bed oh, yeah. when you go when you get up at 5 a.m your body is not prepared to fool you into thinking that you're not gonna die yeah that's that's basically how i think it works my biggest problems that I have are my neck and my back. I always have pain in my back. It's constant. Um, I've, there were issues in the military and helicopter landings, car accidents, all sorts of stuff that, uh, that kind of jacked up my back a little bit. Uh, the VA has been all right about taking a look at that. Um, the VA is doing more than taking a look at back and neck issues, though. Check this out. According to a story by our Jonathan Copanger at ConnectingVets.com, and that's, of course, what we are on social media, at Connecting Vets. Follow us there. But if you go to the site, right up at the top, you'll see a picture of a gentleman. Uh, looks like a model, chiseled jaw. He's got one of those butt chin things and everything going on. 
getting a neck massage. And why is that there? Well, if you look at the headline, attention veterans, VA wants to give you a neck massage. I had no idea about this. So the VA is looking for veterans with chronic neck pain to participate in a pain management trial to test a very relaxing type of therapy, neck massage. They're comparing two different types of massage, according to Dr. Matthew Baer, who's the core investigator at the VA Health for VA Center for Health Information and Communication at the Richard L. Raudabush VA Medical Center in Indianapolis, Indiana. Why do they need to name those things after people? Why not just VA Medical Center Indianapolis? That would be a lot easier for everybody to say. You have to honor somebody. I don't think you do. And it's a federal building, you know, and it doesn't need to be named after anybody. It's They're like, all named after somebody. I know. That's what I'm asking. Why? What, what benefit does that make? They're federal buildings. Did these people donate money to get them built? That's how you usually get a building named after you. But I, I don't know of too many VAs where public funds were used, where, you know, donations and things like that, where it's usually federal funds. I think it's one of those things that you just do because it's what you do. Yeah, I don't know. Just, you know, for my purposes, VA Medical Center, Indianapolis. That works for me. It kind of gets to the point. If you tell someone, oh, yeah, the Richard L. Roudbush VA Medical Center. Where's that? I don't know. It's uh, wherever Richard L. Raudabush was probably (laughs) from or something like that. But anyway, a group of veterans is receiving a massage therapist delivered program of massage. And another group is receiving what they call caregiver delivered. And they're comparing which of those might be more effective in terms of relieving pain severity. So massage is something that there's different types of massages. There's like cheap massages at the airport where you lay down on one of those tables or, or those little chair things. I remember getting one of those in Kuwait on the way back from Afghanistan, and it was nice, but it wasn't really good. When I was in New York and I had back pain, and my wife uh, would go to this place that had massages, like a, a massage center, uh, a chain. They're around the country. They're actually down near our house, and I still go. She had me go to this guy who's a medical massage therapist. His name was Arkady. I got up from that table after an hour with him, and I walked better than I had in 15 years. Oh, wow. I w- it was like... Oh, wow. That's Jake's catchphrase catch right phrase. there. It's pretty fantastic. I says, as it was leaving my mouth, I'm like, oh, daggummit, here we go. <laughs> Don't even try to stop it. It's adorable. I walked better than I did in 15. Like, I went outside, and it was like a scene in a movie. Now, it was the dead of winter, January in New York. I wanted to, I felt like I was going to do cartwheels down the frozen sidewalks because <laughs> I felt like so amazingly good. And I signed up there. It's a membership. So you get like, I would go once a week, and, and it made a difference for me. The VA offering this, and these would be, I would hope, medical massage therapists and not just like some people they found on Craigslist. Yeah, Pete, <laughs> Pete from down in records. <laughs> yeah, it's just, well, I give a pretty good massage. Yeah. Oh, yeah, come up. Come on up. <laughs> this is legit massage. These are medical massage therapy folks that are doing this. And I'm telling you right now, from personal experience, it can make a world of difference. A good massage. A bad massage, the last one I got, not good. Not good. It. I, I left feeling worse than I did when I went in, <laughs> and my neck actually hurt more, and I don't know what that was all about. It just. It wasn't a good one, and the guy who I had been seeing uh, had now moved on. He got hired by some hospital to do it there. Eh, maybe he got hired by the VA. I don't know. Yeah, that would be great if uh, for those patients there if he did. So this is... Um, it, it, it's a great thing. I like seeing the VA trying new things. It's kind of like how when I was in Jacksonville, the Naval Hospital Jacksonville had acupuncture available. There was a crazy long waiting list for acupuncture, and acupuncture is, for everything I've read in every study, junk science. It's a placebo effect. 
but it seemed to be helping people, and even a placebo effect can be beneficial, so they did it. I mean, what do you think about the VA? And, and you re- you're retired, so you get VA care for the rest of your life. What do you think about them trying to find new and different ways to treat things like neck massage in this case? Well, it's good because the traditional things don't always work. You can't, especially with the opioid crisis going on right now, you can't always just prescribe someone a pill and say, here you go, have fun, yeah. because that's uh, like Dr. Frankenfurter says, taking care of the symptom or of uh, the the cure and not the symptoms. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, the symptoms and not the disease. Really, disease, right? If you treat the symptoms, you know, if, if someone is has something wrong with them and it, like their eyes are watering, and you just treat the eye watering, it's it's not. You're not getting to the the base of what's really going on in there. So yeah, that can certainly be um, a problem. And in this uh, current VA. Outlook, it seems from an outsider's perspective that you walk in there with anything like, man, my toe really hurts. Oh, okay, here's some heroin. Yeah. I mean, that's essentially what opioids are. They come from opium. Same thing as heroin. It's not heroin, obviously. They're not giving people a needle to shoot into their arm, but they're giving them it in pill form, and it's killing people. It's killing a lot of people. So trying to find other ways. I mean, if you have neck pain and they've been giving you painkillers, you can get addicted to those. You can get hooked on those. You can overdose. You can overdose on Advil. Tylenol. You can die from taking too much of either one of those. Take these opioids that are much more powerful, and you're talking about a much more likely uh, death there. Whereas massage, I'm sure there have been some deaths related to massage out there. Where oh, the wrong made. nerve. Yeah, I'm sure there have been, but we know that opioids lead directly to death if taken. Uh, sometimes even at the prescribed levels. I mean, it's just something that can happen. So, uh, you know, you got to hedge your bets there and say, hey, if we can do massage to take care of these issues and no drugs, boom, let's do it, baby. That's the way that I think you have to look at it. Here's another interesting story, Jake, and this is something that eh, doesn't benefit us now because we're not on active duty military, but United Airlines will no longer ask military members to wear uniforms to earn pre-boarding privileges on United Airlines flights. So as long as you can prove that you're in the active duty military, you'll be able to, you know, do the uh, the get on the plane first thing, basically. Before, you had to be flying in a uniform. In the Navy, I think I did that a total of t- once or twice while I was in uniform, excluding coming back from Afghanistan. The reason for that was the Navy was very restrictive on what uniform you could wear. Whereas the Army, I'd see people in the ACU walking around in the airport all the time. You probably shouldn't have. You're not supposed to travel in uniform. Well, no. See, that's the thing. That's not true. You are allowed to travel in uniform. It's on the regulations. I guarantee it. Always has been. The uniform is restricted. The uniform that you're allowed to fly on is restricted. For the Navy, I believe it had to be dress blues. So the the Cracker Jack outfit. That when you think of a sailor and what they're wearing, the the dark blue dress uniform with the neckerchief and the bell bottoms and the 13 buttons on the crotch and all that stuff, you had to wear that one to fly. And it's not the most comfortable uniform at all. So nobody ever did that. But you were allowed to. You were. Uh, They did, I think, think about changing that or did change it for a while after September 11th, but then you were allowed to again. I don't know. It's kind of cool, though, that they're now allowing this to happen. Like, why why is being in uniform mean that you get to go on ahead when really it's the service that's the reason that you're getting up there? So United is going to do this. Um, The previous policy allowed active duty military to pre-board any flight under the condition that a service uniform was being worn. Of course, now the uniforms are not required. So you don't need to you don't need to throw on your your alphas or your dress blues or anything like that to get on the plane. You can just 
kind of go on there ahead of time. And that actually kind of leads us into our next segment. Jake, when you think of a United States Navy sailor like myself or like the ones who are currently serving now, how do you identify them visually? What do you think of that would help identify a sailor? There's a few things uh, in, in most people's minds, but what would it be for you? Uh, a drunken gate. <laughs> That's very funny. <laughs> Uniform-wise. Uniform-wise, I, I picture the Cracker Jacks, the, the Cracker Jack uniform. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the one that the Dixie Cup, the white cap, um, and then the neckerchief, the bell bottoms, those 13 ridiculous buttons on the trousers. And of course, if it's cold, the jacket that they wear with that. The, the peacoat. The peacoat, yeah. And it's it's one of the most iconic Navy uniform items. It's certainly the most fashionable. It's something that sells for $500 in civilian stores. In the Navy, you get one for free in your sea bag. That's about to change, though. The Navy has reversed course on something that they've been issuing for generations of sailors. And in 2019, they're scheduled to stop giving out the peacoat and requiring it to be in sea bags. Well, I spoke to Max Brickle, whose company, Northwest Woolen Mills, up in Rhode Island, is one of the small businesses that makes the peacoat. They're upset about this for a number of reasons. Of course, there is that that iconic status of the peacoat, and he thinks it's just a bad choice for the Navy. But it's also going to have an effect on business, and he thinks the Navy will probably reverse course on the decision like they have with several other uniforms. There was a time back in the 70s where everybody looked like a bus driver in the Navy. They had everybody <laughs> put on these weird uniforms. They switched back to the more uh, known and identifiable Navy ones. So what is his plan to get this changed and make sure that it doesn't happen? We're going to find out right after this. It's the morning briefing from Intercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. I'm your host, Eric Dame. He's Jake Hughes, and we will be back with Max Brickle talking peacoats right after this. We're CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter at ConnectingVets. Welcome back to the morning briefing from Entercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets Every Day is our slogan because it's what we do. Do you want to know why we do it? Well, I'm glad you asked. It's because each and every member of our team is a veteran and knows what it's like to have worn the uniform and just as importantly knows what it's like to have taken that uniform off for the very last time. So we get it. We understand the difficulties, the trials, the tribulations, the desire for that missing camaraderie you felt in uniform. We're trying to help provide that to you each and every day with amazing content at ConnectingVets.com. Be sure to follow us on social media where we are at ConnectingVets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. A little click of your mouse or tap on your phone and you will be living your best veteran life. Our next guest has a very interesting topic to talk to us about that has to do with my beloved Navy that I served for 13 years in. He is Max Brickle, the president of Northwest Woolen Mills, and joins us now on the morning briefing. Max, good morning. How are you today? Very well. Good morning. So the issue that we're going to talk today about is the peacoat, one of the most identifiable aspects of the Navy uniform. It's the jacket being worn by the lone sailor in the statue. But as I understand it, the Navy has decided to do away with the peacoat. What can you tell us about why they made that decision and when this is supposed to happen? Uh, it's supposed to be rolled out in the second quarter, calendar uh, quarter of 2019. Uh, it was put into action in around 2016. Uh, uh, an admiral has decided that 
um, for uh, monetary reasons and also for style changes that they wanted to try something different for the Navy. There are two coats that go into the bag when you join the Navy. Uh, there's an all-weather winter coat, and then there is the dress pea coat. They've decided to take two coats out and put one coat in, which is a uh, the new coat is called a uh, cold-weather parka, and it is made of Gore-Tex, and it looks like, to me, a 1980s ski coat. Uh, it is not a dress garment as far as I'm concerned. And uh, we're very disappointed by the decision to move in this direction, and we're doing what we can to try to change the minds of uh, the Navy to end the phase out of the peacoat, which, uh, as I indicated, should take place sometime in the early part of 2019. Is the financial aspect, the monetary reason, the only reason that the Navy is given on this? That's what they've told us. Um, we, uh, we talked to our congressional representatives to gain support uh, for the iconic peacoat to keep it in place uh, because it is an identifier for the U.S. Navy. Uh, and they told us, listen, we need to cut budgets, and uh, this is a modern type of coat. It should save money, even though when it was uh, projected out that this coat would cost uh, over $300, and the two coats in the bag combined were over $300. Uh, but I think it was more of a style change uh, than it was for uh, budgeting purposes, but they used the budget as the means to get it done. This is one of the most easily identifiable aspects of the Navy uniform. It's the only jacket that's authorized for use with the dress uniforms. I mean, along with the Dixie Cup, it's kind of how you know that you're looking at a sailor when you see him wearing a peacoat. It's pretty clear. Uh, how, how surprising was this to you that the Navy would make a decision to remove something that's so easily identifiable with their history? Yeah, we were actually shocked. We went to a defense contract uh, meeting in 2016, and I actually stepped out of the meeting for about 20 minutes for a phone call, and I missed the portion in which they made the announcement, and I was given a heads up by another contractor was there that uh, they asked me if you heard about the phase-out, and I was, I said, what do you mean phase-out? The Navy's going to phase-out the peacoat? They said, I said, well, what the hell are they going to use? I, I, I mean, uh, we know, and everybody that, uh, friends of ours that are in the Navy, Navy, that, that is an identifiable mark uh, for the Navy as far as recognition uh, around the world. That is the coat that the U.S. Navy sailor wears. Uh, it's great for uh, the dress use that it's meant for. It is not used on the ship for everyday, uh, everyday wear. It's just for dress occasions. Uh, and as we noted, it's, it's the iconic brand of the Navy. So we were surprised, um, but a, a lot of the different uh, entities that make up the U.S. military are, in fact, uh, changing uh, their dress uh, the, the the different uniforms they're wearing. The Army is actually going back to a 1950s uh, uniform dress that they've decided to bring back. So um, this has happened before, and it's usually a four-star general or an admiral that wants to leave his mark, and uh, they've, they've decided to do it with the peacoat. We're speaking with Max Brickle. Max is the president of Northwest Woolen Mills. And of course, Max, you're interested in this because the Peacoat is one of the products that you produce. How long has your organization been producing uh, the Peacoats for the Navy and about how many of them a year do you make? Yes, we've been involved in the Peacoat production for about 22 years now. 
we work with a consortium of textile manufacturers in New England that spread from Mass, Connecticut, and into Rhode Island, from the fabric production to the cut and sew uh, and to the woolen spinning of the yarns. It's all done here in New England. And it probably takes around 200 employees between the three companies that manufacture the product uh, to actually produce the coat. So our company does the manufactures the berets, the blankets for the Defense Department, and we also do the P-Code. Uh, this year, uh, over a 12-month period, we'll produce around 50,000 P-Codes uh, for the Defense Department. That is a lot of P-Codes, and it's obviously a big chunk of your business. I imagine that if the Navy makes this decision, it's going to have a negative impact on those companies that you were talking about all over New England that produce this product. Uh, how is it going to affect your business, do you predict? It'll have a significant impact to the employment base and also the textile infrastructure in the U.S. because most of the woolen uh, processing is still done in the New England area, and it really relies on this government business to sustain itself because the retail market really can't sustain uh, garment production uh, in the U.S. Uh, because the overseas imports are just so inexpensive. But the government wants to keep uh, 100%. Uh, it's called Berry Amendment. They want these products for the U.S. military to be used uh, utilize 100% U.S. fibers and labor all the way through to the finished product. But by making this change to a synthetic product that's actually going to be produced in Puerto Rico, uh, one of the contracts were already awarded for the parka. And so, I mean, Puerto Rico is part of the United States, uh, but they do live by different tax laws there, and they will be taking jobs from uh, continental United States businesses. It's really a, a very interesting thing and an interesting decision. Again, uh, the Navy is deeply rooted in tradition. Our dress uniforms, we have the, uh, you know, the Cracker Jacks, as people call them, the dress blues, the dress whites. We, we're the only service wearing bell bottoms and has 13 buttons on our pants and all that stuff. Uh, it seems surprising to me as a, as a sailor myself that the Navy would move away from this. Uh, if they do, do you have any hope, uh, if this does go through, as you said, second quarter 2019, do you have any hope that they'll reverse this decision? at some point down the road, as they have with other uniform decisions in the past? Yeah, well, we've started an online campaign, Save the Navy Peacoat, and we're, getting, we're sending it out to uh, different markets to get a survey taken, petition signed, um, so that you know, we know the Navy sailor is the end customer uh, for the Defense Department. So, uh, in fact, if the sailor is complaining about it and they want to appease them, hopefully that might have an opportunity to save it. But we're also reaching out to the veterans uh, because, you know, they still have a voice out there. And we're hopeful that between current day sailors and the veterans that we can create a groundswell through our marketing campaign we're doing online and uh, at least provide a voice in front of the admirals that are making this decision. One thing that I feel like we do need to address is the fact that not just is it a useful item when it comes to wearing the dress uniform, so closely identified with the Navy. Again, the lone sailor, the statue of a sailor, he's wearing the Navy peacoat in that statue, or on that statue, however you want to put it. It's also just a, a fashionable thing. It's something that's gained popularity outside of the Navy. And in fact, I, I remember years and years ago, an old girlfriend wanting to borrow my peacoat to wear. I mean, this is a fantastic product that everybody in the Navy uh, knows. They they respect, they love, and now they're moving on from it, it appears. It just 
seems like a, a bad decision, an odd decision, and obviously one that's going to have many ramifications. Max, if people are interested in finding out more about what your organization's doing to try and save the peacoat, how do they go about doing that, and how can they lend their support to you directly? Yeah, it'd be great if the folks uh, get online and they go to savethenavypeacoat.com. Uh, it'll give a lot of information about the drive to try to save the peacoat, a petition they can sign, a, uh, a quick survey that they can take, and that data is being accumulated and will be given to the admirals and the decision makers in the next two months. And we're hoping to get an audience uh, with them sometime in December. Uh, this, you know, the snowball effect has created, uh, it's going to be hard to halt the phase out of the peacoat, but we feel if there's a groundswell of, um, of people that really think, uh, as you do and we do, that this is an unconscionable decision. And uh, we actually had a captain in the Navy uh, contact us, and he said, you know, they tried changing the Navy uniforms back in the 60s and 70s to try to interest more of the young people into coming into the Navy, and he said it had an adverse effect because they, they basically were getting rid of the identifiable marks that are attributed to the Navy that made them different. And uh, so he thinks this is going down that same road and it's going to backfire. Again, an iconic part of that sea bag, the Navy Peacoat, easily identifiable as a Navy Peacoat. Also, one of the very few uh, uniform items that you are allowed to wear with civilian clothes, as well as your dress uniforms. Uh, just sad to me that the Navy's decided to move away from it to something that, as Max Brickle, president of Northwest Willow Mills, just told us, he feels looks most like a 1980s ski jacket, which is not a look that anybody's going for. It'll certainly be interesting to keep an eye on. And one last time, Max, what's the website for people who want to find out more? They can go to savethenavypeacoat.com. There you go. Max Brickle, president of Northwest Woolen Mills, thank you so much for your time today, and thanks for fighting for my one of my favorite uniform items from my time in the Navy. I appreciate you. Thanks for having me on, and appreciate the help. Jake, this is an issue of history versus finance, functionality, apparently. I mean, they say it's about the money, but as Max told us, uh, at least from his perspective, the two jackets that they're replacing with the one that he described as looking like an 80s ski jacket, which, yeah, kind of. It's kind of like just like a black puffy jacket type of thing. The two jackets they're replacing, the Navy all-weather jacket and the pea coat, cost about the same added together as this new jacket does. So I don't know how it's going to save money. It can save space, which is important in a sea bag and important on a ship and maybe allow you to bring some extra undies and stuff like that instead of packing in uh, a Pico. And those things, are they're, they are heavy. They, they're bulky. They take up a lot of space. But there is that historical aspect of it. I mean, if the, if the history doesn't matter, why not just get rid of all dress uniforms? Why not have everybody just wear the most utilitarian uniform that you have all the time? Yeah, and you got to be careful, Navy. You're going to turn to the Army with all your uniform changes. Well, I, geez, the, the thing that they switched from the NWU to, which is the blue camouflage uniform, uh, the new camouflage uniform, it look, it's an Army uniform, essentially, is all that it is. And I never understood that, why on a ship where you could possibly fall in the water, you would want to wear a blue uniform. Well, you wouldn't, and there were a lot of jokes about that. And also on the, uh, the, the deck of many of the working spaces and passageways on ships, it has this, um, this blue... 
I don't know what you would call it, coating on the ground. It's kind of like a, a rubber, a hard, hard plastic rubber coating. It's blue with like flecks of gray and white in there. There are pictures of people like laying down in the NWU when it first came out and they blend it in with, uh, <laughs> with the floor. So people ask like, what are you going to blend in with? You'd be like, oh, the deck, the deck of the ship. That's what you're going to blend in with. It was a uniform that came out more based on, I think, what the sailors wanted than what they needed. They didn't like the utilities which were a dark blue slack and a light blue, either short sleeve or long sleeve uh, shirt. Before that, they didn't like the dungarees, which were bell-bottom uh, dungaree pants and the same kind of light blue shirt. Uh, they, they just didn't like those two uniforms. They didn't look cool is what the problem was. The dungarees were very uh, tied to history. I mean, they dated back to, you know, as, as long as you want to go back as far as a working uniform goes. The utilities that they replaced them with looked more like a coast guard uniform that's basically what people <laughs> said like oh so we now we look like the coast guard and that's not cool so they wanted to come up with something more readily identifiable with the navy and they went with the nwu i liked it compared to what the uh, looks wise what it looked like compared to the utilities and the dungarees the thing that i didn't like about it or that i the, the, the thing that i liked about it more utility wise though was it required so much less care than those other uniforms. You had to iron every time you washed your utilities or dungarees. You had to iron the shirt. You had to iron the pants. You never had to do that with the camouflage uniform. Yeah, same thing in the army. When we wore BDUs, you had to like be what we the phrase you used to use was cutting air with your sleeves. Yeah, with the the creases that yeah. you would put on there and everything. But when they switched to the ACU, nope. no more of that. that Pull went it out away. of the washer. Put it out of the dryer. Put it on. You're good. Yeah, and uh, that that's a good thing. That's a good utilitarian thing. I guess the question goes back to, should we switch to just utilitarian uniforms, just the uniforms that make the most sense and are the most efficient, and do away with all the historical things, like a, a, a cavalry soldier who, who wear those, uh, those uh, what do they call those hats? Stetsons. The Stetsons. Do you do away with those? They're not riding horses anymore. That hat requires special care, takes up extra room. Do you do away with it? Yeah. The, the Dixie Cup in the Navy, it's it's really not uh, an efficient cover anymore because you don't use it in the same way that they used to. You know why the Dixie Cup is designed like it is? Why? You can switch it. You can pop the uh, the, the part that goes around down and it becomes like uh, the Gilligan hat. You know, you could do that. And they used to do that back in the day to protect from sun or rain or things like that. You're not allowed to do that in the Navy anymore. You walk around with that thing pulled down, you're going to get hammered by every chief on the boat. It's yep, just because it will be comfortable and functional. Lord knows we can't have that. No, we don't want to have any of that going on. So the peacoat, um, you know, it's it's an interesting thing. It was in my sea bag, on my sea bag list. Here's the other thing. When the Navy says, like, well, it takes up too much space on the ship. How many times I brought my peacoat onto the ship? How many times? Zero. Never. It was always in my closet at home. It was something. It was one of the one of the only, if not the only, uniform item that you were allowed to wear. Uh, external item, of course, socks and stuff you wear. That you were allowed to wear with civilian clothes. It was also the only jacket that you could wear with your dress blues. You weren't allowed to wear the all weather jacket with your dress blues. Um, you could wear the rain jacket that you got at boot camp, but it was like a big black trench coat. Um, I don't know what happened to that one after boot camp. I like got rid of it and just never saw it again. The sea bag list is, is, you know what you need. You bring what you need. There are some commands, some ships where, especially for the younger sailors, they'll actually do an inspection of the sea bag and you need to have everything there. But I never remember bringing that peacoat onto the ship, except, uh, when we were in dry dock in Norfolk and I wanted to, uh, I knew I was going to be standing watch in a cold place, bring the peacoat, put that thing on. You're going to be nice and warm. I don't like to see him get rid of it, particularly for like some some goofy uh, parka 
the parka is is it just doesn't look good. It doesn't have any sort of I don't know. It just doesn't work for me. Yeah. Add it to the sea bag list if you want, but don't remove the pea coat, man. Yeah, it's one of those things where it's like you said, you got to balance the historical significance of uniforms with functionality and right. i think the, the the military as a whole doesn't know what to do the only branch that really knows something about maintaining a historical look really is the marine corps oh yeah with they their haven't dress changed at all yeah i mean the their 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 working uniforms have changed the camouflage patterns and all that stuff they have several of those but yeah their normal uniforms their dress uniforms and their alphas or whatever those are called um that those have not changed at all. They've stayed the same. The Navy's dress uniforms have mostly stayed the same, but as I mentioned earlier, and as I think Max mentioned during the interview too, there was a period in the 70s where they everybody looked like a, like an airline pilot, like double-breasted suit jackets and pants, kind of like what Navy officers wear as their dress uniform. The enlisted sailors were wearing those too, and it didn't last very long, thankfully. They went back to it, which is kind of what Max thinks is going to happen here. He thinks that this was just the decision of an admiral and that it's going to be undone by whoever the next guy is. He's going to be the conquering hero who comes in. This guy thinking, well, i got to leave my mark on the Navy. And then the next admiral in that position that comes in going, yeah, let's go back to the way things were. Nobody likes this. Um, the peacoat, again, it's a favorite of sailors. It's something that we like. It's something that actually looks good. And the lone sailor statue. You familiar with it? Yes. What's the lone sailor wearing? The things that are easily identifiable. He's got bell-bottom pants, a Dixie cup, and what kind of jacket is he wearing, Jake? Uh, parka? Yeah. We should Photoshop that. <laughs> like the 80s, the 80s ski parka onto the lone sailor. What do you think about this statue now, folks? Yeah, it's yeah, that's interesting. Also interesting, Jake, you were mentioning a story to me early. Sounds like there was a charity or an organization, something that raised a lot of money, supposedly for veterans' issues, but... We're not quite sure where that money has ended up going. Yes, it's coming out of Tampa, Florida. A group called Vet Made Industries received money from generous people donating their cars to help train unemployed and disabled vets. The charity took in more than $6.5 million, but so far has kept its store closed, helping no one. The... Uh, the uh, where's what's this guy's name? Vetman founder John Campbell says that they have a partnership with a local work therapy group called James Haley. However, Haley reached out and said we have no existing partnership. And last year they took in another one point seven million dollars, and still their doors remain closed. What are they supposed to be raising the money for specifically? Like, what kind of organization is this, or is it just one of those general like we help veterans types of groups? They partner and have partners. Um, they uh, charity's mission is to put unemployed disabled veterans back to work. That's all it says. <laughs> yeah, which is very sketchy because that's like the most generic general vague. Uh, it's exactly. very vague. You know, it's like as people talk about Facebook posts as vague book posts when you're like. People need to stop doing A, B, and C. It's like, well, okay, well, why don't you just call out the person who supposedly did that to you? On, I mean, why are you talking about them without? Well, <laughs> don't be vague. That's more being passive aggressive. Yeah, well, and this is kind of a, a passive aggressive way of stealing from people. That's true. It's not as flat out as coming out like, hey, give us your money, and we're going to give it to. No, we're not going to give it to veterans. Just give us your money. We're going to get it from you one way or the other. Let's just do this right now. Uh, there are too many organizations out there that have done things like this. Too many predators. And there are cases, and it sounds like when they reached out to the guy who had the previous relationship with this organization, I'm going to say that he probably had a previous relationship. They claimed it was still current, and then he said no. He said there is no existing relationship. That means currently. So it sounds like there may have been one previously. 
Because if you never had a relationship with them, that's what you say. We have never been affiliated with this organization. So it sounds like they were probably at one point affiliated with them, and then something happened, and that fell apart. There are organizations that start off with the best intentions, but then end up just uh, things go south, man, and people have a bad time. I don't know what what type of example or case this is. Sometimes if you have an organization that's looking to raise $50,000 and ends up raising $50 million, uh, they start doing like, well, I mean, we only wanted to raise 50000 so we can kind of pocket some of this other cash over here. Yeah. Well, according to Campbell's own admission, VetMade Industries hasn't helped any veterans in at least five years, and yet still it's collected billions and kept storks closed. So this, to me, sounds more like it's either severe incompetence or downright theft. It could also be a case where uh, they, 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 they're trying to think that they're smarter than the law. You remember when like Wesley Snipes didn't pay taxes on the millions of dollars that he made for a few years because he believed there was a legal loophole because of what some lawyer told him? There was not, and he ended up going to prison for that. These people might be thinking, well, we're not actively out there seeking donations, but people are still giving them to us. Like, you know, we're not still operational, but that's not our fault for them not knowing that. I mean, y- y- there are a lot of things that could be going on here. The one thing that it seems we do know is going on because it's admitted by them. They haven't helped anybody in five years, but they're still taking in cash. And that is oh, that's a big time federal crime. That's that's going to prison for a long, long time type of thing. Yeah, I think that's like if you violate the 501C, you get serious jail time. Oh, yeah. No, you certainly can. And we've seen instances of this. There was that college in in New Jersey that was um, claiming that they were that was claiming that they were doing a lot of great things for veterans and putting them through the school. It turned out they were making up the students. The professors weren't accredited. The courses were garbage. It happens. Is it rare? I don't know if rare is the word. I think most of the organizations out there are trying to do the right thing and have the best interest of veterans in mind. But you can't say for sure. We see enough of these instances where you do have to question them, and you should question them. And if they're a good organization, they're not going to have a problem with you questioning them. You know? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's what it comes down to. If they're doing the right thing, they will not have any problem with you asking about them being able to prove they're doing the right thing. We used to see this at my VFW post all the time. There were a couple organizations in our area that were scam artists. One had a guy who was pretending to be blind. <laughs> had a had a had a blind uh what do you call it the the seeing, seeing eye, eye dog, dog and was marching in a parade with it with the sunglasses on and and had the little uh the, the cane thing too he was seen by one of the post members uh a few hours after the parade sitting at a bus stop with that dog which no longer had uh the vest on looking at his phone oh you're blind huh turned out that guy wasn't a veteran either but was claiming to be and his organization was stealing money from people and i mean there, there's like all sorts of things like that that go on around the country most people's hearts are in the right place. Most people are doing the right thing with the money they raise. There's no harm in checking, though. It doesn't matter if it's someone claiming to be from a VFW, American Legion, Wounded Warrior Project, or these dirtbags who have just been collecting uh, money for five years without helping anybody. You're listening to The Morning Briefing here on Entercom Radio's ConnectingAtVets.com. Connecting Vets Every Day is our slogan, and it's what we do. Follow us on social media where we are at Connecting Vets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. One little click of your mouse or tap on your phone, and you will be that much closer to living your best veteran life. Coming up next, we're going to talk to Tom Baker. He's the junior vice commander of VFW Post 7383 in Cary, North Carolina. Going to talk to him about Hurricane Florence, how the VFW is helping the community down there, and how they're helping veterans and military members recover from the storm. Morning briefing, Eric Day and JQs, back right after this. Helping military veterans stay connected. We make it easy. We're CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. 
Connecting vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. At Connecting Vets. Welcome back to the morning briefing from Entercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Be sure to visit that website as many times as you can in a day without getting in trouble with the boss. And of course, follow us on social media. We are at Connecting Vets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. The latest and greatest images, news, information, videos, all coming from our team of veterans. Because each and every one of us has served in the United States military except for our executive producer, who's actually the spouse of an Army Ranger. So we've got the whole variety of experiences covered, and we're focusing on it each and every day. Of course, we've been talking for several days now, really, since uh, early last week about Hurricane Florence, as it became clear that it was going to make a direct hit on some part of the Mid-Atlantic. During different times of the storm, we saw it predicted to go as far north as D.C. and Baltimore, as far south as South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida. It really ended up hitting right on North Carolina. And our next guest knows that all too well because he is part of an organization that's working to help that area recover. Our next guest is Tom Baker, Junior Vice Commander of VFW Post 7383 in Cary, North Carolina. Tom, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing good. Uh, I'm just uh, glad to be on here to uh, share the, the information and stories about what's going on uh, down here in North Carolina. And tell us exactly what what is going on in your area, because, of course, there are different levels of damage in different areas. First, for the listeners who don't know, where exactly is Cary, North Carolina, and, and what's what are things looking like there now? So uh, Cary is actually in the capital region just outside of Raleigh. Um, we actually we, we didn't take a direct hit as was initially thought we, we thought we were going to have something like what hurricane Fran was back in 96. Uh, but as the storm got close and started to make, uh, you know, contact with the coast, it kind of swerved South and then, uh, followed a, a South easterly or Southwesterly course rather, uh, down the Southern side of the state. So we actually, we got a, a little bit of rain. There was some wind damage power and stuff out, but we fared really well, uh, when compared to what's going on just, uh, East of us. So, uh, we're pretty lucky up here, and that's why we're able to uh, get uh, ready and, and kind of set up to uh, get in and assist. Getting in and assisting is something that we know a number of organizations are doing. you got Team Rubicon down there. you got the Sheepdogs down there. And, of course, the VFW. For all those people who think of the VFW as nothing but a social club for war veterans, it's a lot more than that. The VFW does a lot of things. And what Post 7383 and Cary is doing is trying to help those who were more affected by the storm than they were. So, Tom, when it became clear to you that you were going to be in the position to be able to do that with the storm heading a little bit farther south from you, what was the plan? process like i mean how long was it before the vfw post uh, sprung into action to do everything they could so uh initially what had happened uh, you know leading up to the storm actually coming in uh the commander of the department of north carolina that's uh, alan payne he uh basically put down a plan you know that was put together at the vfw headquarters uh, for the department and they labeled or designated six posts around the state as collection points for uh, relief aid. Uh, so ahead of the storm, they sent out a press release, which was on about September 11th, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, designating those sites and letting everybody know that we were open and ready to start collecting aid before the storm even made landfall. So we had started planning well in advance to kind of be prepared uh, the day you know after the storm had kind of cleared the state to begin operations to push 
needed uh, supplies to affected areas. So that was kind of where it started was actually, uh, you know, a bunch of people had brainstormed and were thinking, how can we get involved? And, and it kind of went from there to uh, a plan being coordinated by uh, the department with the districts and different posts around the state. So collecting the, the goods and the things that are needed to go down there is, is the first step. Is the post, the VFW, delivering them down there? Or what is the method of, of getting those supplies to the people who need them in areas like you know, Wilmington and, and New Bern and the places that we've seen that were really hit hard? So the big thing that we're uh, looking at right now is we're following what the Department of Transportation here, the North Carolina Department of Transportation, is putting down as well as the governor, the emergency management. All of those entities uh, are basically telling us, you know, that the, the worst of the flooding uh, hasn't necessarily hit. And that's something that uh, a lot of people aren't really kind of realizing is that all this water that dropped, 8 trillion gallons is what the National Weather Service said, it's all flowing downgrade to the coast. And so Every day there's road closures, openings. I mean, things are shifting. It's very, very dynamic right now. So what we've done is we've created a situation where essentially we're going to start pushing supplies into places like Sanford. I know uh, our senior vice commander, state senior vice commander, Craig Armstrong, was going, he, he convoyed down to Kenston with some supplies uh, before uh, the waters were supposed to come back up, I think maybe today. Um, I-40 and I-95 are shut down for at least another week. So we're trying to kind of move things in a fashion where we collect everything in certain areas across the state. Then we start pushing them in further until we can, you know, then reassess and say, okay, this area is safe for passage and travel. This area isn't. Um, And so that's kind of the situation we're at right now. Things are changing hourly. And so we're constantly reassessing how we want to go and continue pushing things in. So for now, it's more or less a leapfrog operation to try to get in as close as we can so that when those waters do go down, and a lot of those communities where a bunch of our veterans and their families uh, and active duty military live, they've been cut off completely near Fort Bragg, near uh, Camp Lejeune. There's whole communities that there's no way in or out right now. So uh, we're just kind of waiting uh, for the floodwaters to continue to get to a level where it is safe for us to get down into those areas where they are uh, most heavily impacted. We're speaking with Tom Baker, Junior Vice Commander of Veterans of Foreign Wars, Post 7383 in Cary, North Carolina, about the devastating after effects of Hurricane Florence. This is something that is, uh, you know, we saw it coming. We knew it was going to be bad. Uh, Tom, in your opinion, I mean, did it end up being worse than what you thought it was going to be, or is this just different? Because it really wasn't the impact of the storm that had the biggest effect. It's been the flooding and everything after that's been worse. Uh, I, I would tell you, you know, I... I grew up in North Carolina. I spent my life here for the most part. Uh, I don't really ever recall anything ever being as bad. Um, honestly, I think from my standpoint is way worse than I ever thought it would be. Uh, the thing about it is, is that, you know, you're talking about an immense amount of water. Not only was it, you know, the rainfall, but we also had a massive storm surge come up these, these uh, rivers and stuff that dump out in the ocean. So places like Newburn. Uh, where, you know, we have a post right on the water. Uh, those areas were inundated, you know, as the storm came in with floodwaters and rainwater. So, I mean, you know, there's a National Weather Service, you know, was saying that certain areas and little tiny areas of the state saw 50 inches of rain. And I, I could not ever fathom the amount of water that's on the ground down east and, and how many people have really been impacted. It's interesting that you mentioned, you know, of course, New Bern, which which we've seen on the news. It was one of the hardest hit locations. Has there been any contact with the VFW posts in places like New Bern, the hardest hit locations? Uh, have they been able to communicate kind of the things that are needed to the VFW to allow you to know what you need to try to get down to them? 
I think from, from what I understand, we, we have uh, made contact with some people down east. I'm not exactly sure which posts that are, uh, you know, making contact. The biggest thing right now is, you know, we pre-planned a list of items, you know, for post uh, kind of recovery and for immediate needs like food and sanitary, uh, you know, toiletries and stuff like that. So essentially we're, we're trying to get in with these like day one items that people are going to need when they go back to their house and they have to start cleaning and, and they need to set up in a way that allows them to, you know, survive down there. So the, the reality right now is, is that most of these people down there that, you know, are members that are down there are, they are communicating, they are working with local groups. A lot of them are members of team Rubicon. Um, so it's kind of a situation where it's more or less people down East are so focused on what's right in front of them that they're not necessarily, uh, you know, we're not directly connected as much as we'd like to be, but um, we're working on getting comms uh, better established so that we can uh, coordinate better. We're speaking with Tom Baker. Tom is junior vice commander of VFW Post 7383 in Cary, North Carolina, who are doing everything they can to try and get the, the supplies, the necessary items to those people in North Carolina hardest hit by the storm. Let me ask Tom, what are the specific items that you guys are looking for? If there's people out there listening and say, yeah, we'd like to help get something down to the VFW post, what are the items that you guys need? Um, so I think one of the, one of the first things, I, I, honestly, what would probably be uh, for people listening across the country, um, one of the best things you could possibly do is actually donate to the VFW's uh, uh, disaster relief program. Um, they are, you know, the national level is accepting funds right now uh, for service members and families impacted by Florence. Um, and so you can actually go to the VFW website at www.vfw.org backslash disaster relief support. Um, and you can contribute there. Uh, you can also uh, send checks payable to the VFW earmarked to disaster relief to the Veterans of Foreign Wars Quartermaster General, uh, 406 West 34th Street, Kansas City, Missouri. And uh, that honestly right right for for everyone around the country and anyone around the world that wants to help that is the best way you can do it is, is to uh send money so that the vfw disaster relief program uh can continue uh funding uh efforts down here and that is uh of course a huge key in in helping out it's it's not cheap to get this stuff down there and has there been a lot of teamwork with the vfw posts and the national level as far as coordination to try and get everything staged and keep moving it farther and farther in how are the posts and the national headquarters working together on this so uh yeah we we coordinated via uh several conference calls that were held as the storm was uh making landfall and then over the course of the storm event here in north carolina um, and, you know, first it was kind of, you know, the department districts and the posts that were set up, you know, Fayetteville, Rockingham, Sanford, Cary, Clemens and Indian Trail. We were all kind of communicating. And then uh, one of the calls we had after the storm made landfall uh, was with South Carolina, North Carolina and Virginia Department commanders uh, and the national commander in chief, uh, B.J. Armstrong, called in and, and we coordinated pretty heavily on that call. And it uh, it wound up that. Uh, out of that, we had, uh, you know, the commander of Virginia Department, uh, Ken Wiseman, he came down um, in a truck. He drove down Tuesday morning with a U-Haul truck and delivered one of the first uh, truckloads of supplies. Uh, you know, we have people, uh, there are posts around the country right now that are, you know, collecting and getting ready to convoy up with stuff. Um, it's been a phenomenal. And I, I can tell you from 
from all the way down at the post level, all the way up to the national commander in chief, we are coordinating and we are making sure that the veterans of foreign wars is positioned to get in and, and provide relief, you know, not just for veterans and military and their families, but we really do want to have an impact on our communities because, you know, veterans, we move around a lot, but at the end of the day, we are part of every community that we go and live in. And so we want to be able to help as much as we can. And uh, it's, it's been phenomenal coordinating with everybody. Do you think that veterans are, are predisposed to being able to deal with situations like this? I mean, particularly VFW members, that means you served, if you're eligible for membership in the VFW, boots on the ground in a war zone. You've been to some of the worst places in the world. Do you think that makes uh, VFW members uniquely suited to be able to, uh, to help out in an event like this? Uh, I think really the muscle memory that you get built in every time you, you know deploy. So OEF, OAF vets, we've done... Most of us did multiple deployments. You know, my uh, commander, uh, Dave Wagner, he's an Army MP, and, you know, he did deployments OEF. And and we've all kind of been in that mode for so long where we know how not only to uh, deal with disasters and emergency situations, but we know how to flex. We know how to kind of make things work and plan kind of last-minute changes. and, And, you know, just basically we are, in a way, I feel kind of prepared just because of the training and the experiences that we have, uh, it enables us to kind of think and move uh, in austere environments and not necessarily be as impacted in terms of, uh, you know, getting bogged down with a lot of things that would kind of get in the way uh, if you didn't have that training and experience. So, yeah, I do think that veterans are uh, kind of uniquely positioned in today's society to really step forward and get things rolling uh, out the gate. We're speaking with Tom Baker, Junior Vice Commander of VFW Post 7383 in Cary, North Carolina, about the disaster relief efforts ongoing after Hurricane Florence slammed into North Carolina. Pretty much a direct hit. And then, of course, a storm surge, 50 inches of rain, an incredible amount of water just devastating communities down there. Uh, Tom, let me ask, how long do you think the community in the area down there is going to be dealing with the after effects of this storm? Years. I mean, you know, Hurricane Matthew hit in 2016 and it was a devastating storm for a lot of the same reasons a lot of rain uh and it was at the time you know probably some of the worst flooding they'd ever seen there are areas i was watching on the news last night there was a church i believe down in spring lake a presbyterian church that the water made it to the steps during matthew well during this storm during florence the water made it almost to the top of the door into the church if that tells you the major difference in the total amount of water and things are not over and i have to stress that because the governor, the DOT, and everyone is like, please, if you don't need to come down east, do not come down here because we have so many rivers and creeks that are at flood stage and they're going to get worse as the rest of this stuff from the mountains, the Piedmont region heads downgrade. So, I mean, that's kind of, you know, I, I just think it's going to be years longer than probably the, the last one that we've been trying to recover from. And then we also have to consider the fact that the weather, I mean, there are, it's going to rain here in the Washington, D.C. area again this weekend. There's going to be more rain while recovering from this storm, and that can have a, a negative effect as well. Of course, as Tom told us, you can go to vfw.org slash disaster relief support. We've got an easy little link there for you to donate online. There's also a list of needed supplies if you're looking to donate those as well. 
Tom, I want to ask you about something. Obviously, the VFW, some people think the VFW are just guys that march in parades and they have a, a little bar that they go to and uh, the, the foreign war veterans go and commiserate with each other. Obviously, from everything we've been talking to you about, the VFW does a lot more than that. Now, full disclosure, I'm a VS, VFW member myself, but what was it that originally drew you to the organization? Was it the chance to give back to the community along with that camaraderie? Uh, yeah, I think, honestly, I joined, you know, after my first uh, deployment out to Iraq, I, I came home and I just wanted to find a, an organization of people that had a similar experience. And I was trying to, you know, figure my figure out a lot of things about life and, you know, trying to just decide what I wanted to do. And I, I joined the VFW mostly because the information and, you know, the support that, you know, guys like John Towles up in D.C., who's the, uh, you know, director of VFW's uh, National Security foreign affairs program he was the deputy ledge director but you know folks that are on the front lines fighting for our benefits you know that's the one thing that a lot of people don't understand is that there's a whole staff of people in dc who are literally up there kind of acting as our uh they are they're our liaisons and they're our representatives to congress and they make sure that we get the benefits that we deserve but on the other end it was about that service and trying to find a way to not only give back to veterans but also to give back to my community because the community has given me so much and so you know i joined for those reasons. And, you know, I, ha I can't really say that uh, I was an active member for the majority of the time that I've been in. I actually uh, didn't become an active member until I moved to Cary in 2017. And so uh, it's something where if you're looking for an opportunity to engage, get involved and really make an impact and a difference, the VFW is there. And, and you know, we're we're an evolving organization and we are leaning forward as, as we uh, have, you know, 4.5 million uh, returning veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan. And so we're looking to obviously bring in more of our brothers and sisters that we served with. So, um, yeah, I mean, I absolutely love it. When you think about the fact that, you know, we know what it's like to have worn the uniform, of course, there are those who still are. And North Carolina, South Carolina, there is a massive number of active duty military, particularly the Army and Marine Corps in those two states. Uh, what do you know about how they've been affected by the storm at places like Lejeune and Paris Island and other locations? Uh, well, what I do know is, you know, Jacksonville got hit pretty bad and they were cut off. I know 17, the main one of the main state routes was completely cut off for a while. Um, I was actually talking to a friend of mine who's down at Cherry Point Havelock area, uh, his house, he just got home and he had some, you know, wind damage and some stuff done to his roof, a little bit of water in his house. And he was pretty lucky comparatively to the rest of the region. So yeah, the impact on veterans and military families, active duty, uh, it's going to be enormous because the concentration of all of our bases, obviously, uh, they're right down there. You know, Fort Bragg is on, uh, the, the Cape Fear river, which, that's flooding out in Fayetteville, uh, New Bern and Havelock and Jacksonville. All these areas are coastal, low-lying. So there is going to be a massive need for support on the end of our military veterans and, and, and their families. We're speaking with Tom Baker. Tom is junior vice commander at the VFW post down there in Cary, North Carolina. We've been talking about everything that's going on in relation to Hurricane Florence. Uh, you know, Tom, when you when you look around, uh, the VFW, the Cary VFW, when I was looking you guys up, you were actually recently in the news for something not so good. Somebody broke in and stole money from your organization. But even when something like that happens at your VFW post, I mean, it, it, it's just pretty amazing to see that the post is still, you know, still 
wanting to give back to the community, even after a member of the community does something horrible like that. Uh, was there ever any doubt in your mind that the VFW in general and the Carry Post specifically uh, would be responding to this uh, disaster in the way that you are? We knew when we first heard that this storm was going to be a monster and it was going to come at us, we all kind of started talking and we all knew, you know, it was, it was, it was going to be bad. And, and the thing that I always say, and most of us, I think agree, will agree with is that our oath did not end the day that, you know, we got our DDQ 14 and took that uniform off. And I think that honestly, it, it, it really means that you have to double down and, and recommit yourself to uh, being an American citizen, being a good citizen, being somebody who gives back no matter what, because we have gotten or we have received so much from the people of this country. And when they're down and out and they need us, we need to be there for them. And so, you know, at carry at the carry post, we're lucky because we're in an area where we do have a large metropolitan area. We do, we're in a more kind of affluent area of the state too. And so we do have resources and access to resources that uh, those in some of the other areas of the country and, and the state don't necessarily have. So we are able to kind of push through and continue rolling. Um, and we've got a great team over there. You know, uh, it, it really, that's what it boils down to is we have a great team in place. It's, it's, you know, OEF, OAF, uh, OIF vets, men and women, Vietnam era. We got Korea, we got World War II. We're representing it all. And everybody is, it's an all hands on deck evolution. So, I mean, we are very blessed over here in Cary uh, and in the state of North Carolina. One of the things that that kind of amazed me the most about joining my VFW post up on Long Island when I joined was the fact that the the v, the Korean War not not so much the World War II veterans at this point you know 2011 or 12 or so uh, but the Korean War veterans the Vietnam veterans the the older guys at the post were some of the most active in the community making sure that everything was happening the way it should for veterans as well as the community in general kind of leveraging uh, the fact that like we had a Bronze Star recipient from the Korean War who would leverage that fact to help kids in school and things like that it sounds like you have a lot of that going on too down there where you've got the Korean War veterans. World War II veterans, the, the Vietnam veterans, uh, taking part in, in everything that's going on, right? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty awesome because we're able to go out and, you know, we've, we've been invited to some local schools to speak on Veterans Day. Uh, we go out and do the parades in town. We do a lot of work where we go, you know, actually our chaplain, Pete, uh, Pete Stewart, he's great. And, you know, he's a, a Vietnam guy and he finds veterans and, you know, VFW members who are in uh, retirement homes who really don't have anyone to come visit. And so they schedule up and visit. And, uh, you know, I'm the service officer, so I get involved a lot of times. Not only am I in charge of the relief funds program that we have where we can give out, you know, grants uh, to help veterans in need, uh, but I also uh, deal with veterans who need maybe connections with services or a little advice and connections with people to get their benefits taken care of. And recently I've been working with Korean War vets. I even got my grandfather to finally get in the VA. He was a uh, 43 to 46 in the Pacific with the U.S. Army, and I got him to join and get his health care finally a couple of years ago. So, I mean, it's just a great, great community. And, and it, honestly, I've learned so much from these, these guys, these World War II, Korea, and Vietnam vets. Like, they've showed me, hey, these are some of the pitfalls and landmines that we hit along the way in our transition and getting out. Uh, here's how you avoid them. And that's something that you can't pay for. That's something you can't get an appointment for. That is just bona fide wisdom. And so... If you join the VFW for anything you know, or whatever, that right there in itself is worth every penny of your membership is that wisdom. 
I fully agree, and I, I fully experience that. And I think every younger veteran who's joined at a post has, where you know those guys have been through everything that you're going through. Literally, they know exactly what you need to watch out for, and they are more than willing to help. And service officers like Tom Baker, down at VFW Post 7383, carry at North Carolina. Those service officers, whether you're a member or not, they are there to help you and help you get what you need done. And right now, what they're helping is with the 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 disaster relief effort with Hurricane Florence. Again, visit vfw.org slash disaster relief support. There's a way to donate money online there. There's also a list of supplies and the addresses, the mailing addresses for the posts down there, including post 7383 down in Cary. Tom Baker, Junior Vice Commander of the Post, thank you so much for joining us today. More importantly, man, thank you so much for what you and the Post and all the all the VFW members down in North Carolina are doing for uh, for your fellow citizens down there. It's truly great to see oh well thank you so much uh for having me and you know i really am appreciative of all the the support we're receiving from dfw you know lynn roth out in kansas city uh the director of programs uh he uh you know made sure that i was able to get on here today uh and, and spread the word so thank you for what you're doing to help us get the word out well, it's absolutely our pleasure. You guys are doing the hard work. All I'm doing is sitting here in awe of all the people like Team Rubicon, like Sheepdogs, like the VFW who are helping out those affected by this devastating storm. Tom Baker of the VFW, we want to thank him for his time, and we want to thank you for listening today. This ends the Friday edition of the Morning Briefing, and just as a reminder, I'm emceeing the Military Influencer Conference down in Orlando this weekend and into next week, so JQs will be in the captain's chair Monday through Wednesday. I know he's a former soldier. He's not a sailor like me, but I think he can handle being in the captain's chair. Maybe he can call it something else, like the... I don't know, tank commander's chair or something. He was a tanker for a while. <laughs> I'll be back on Thursday of next week. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great, safe weekend. And Jake will see you here on Monday morning. Bye-bye. Helping military veterans stay connected. We make it easy. We are CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter at Connecting Vets. His karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams... Thanks for everything, Mom and Dad. ...will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone.